You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number six, the portrait. It's probably a little too big for the wall where it hangs, the one facing you as you start to go downstairs. It is a portrait in oils of me at twenty, with a mop of dark brown hair and brooding eyes. The sitter doesn't realise how beautiful he is, but then, at twenty, how many of us ever do? On seeing it, a friend once described the portrait as Dorian Gray in reverse. Harsh, but fair. In the world of politics, the name Arthur Bottomley is one that does not readily come to mind. These days, I would wager that even the Andrew Mars and Kirsty Walks of today would struggle to place the Labour MP who once sat in Harold Wilson's cabinet. Arthur's route to power was a fairly common one back in the day. A steadfast and slightly right-wing trade union organiser who worked his way through the ranks to be rewarded with a Labour candidacy, having proven himself a loyal and safe pair of hands, regardless of who was in charge. He was elected to represent Chatham in the Attlee landslide of 1945, where he was a popular MP until his constituents decided, in 1959, they had never had it so good and he lost his seat, only to gain another in Middlesbrough in a 1962 by-election. Wilson made him Commonwealth Secretary two years later, then a cabinet post, and he sat in the Commons for another 21 years before being kicked upstairs to the Lords as Baron Bottomley of Middlesbrough. And after hearing all this about Arthur Bottomley, you would be justified in asking, why are you telling me this? Well, in 1980, the burghers of Middlesbrough decided that since Arthur had now been their MP for 18 years, it was high time they commissioned an official portrait in oils for the town hall. I imagine the conversation went something like this. We can't find a local artist of sufficient skill and calibre to capture your likeness, Arthur. Do you know anyone down in that London who's up to the job? It so happens I do, said Arthur. And she lives three doors away from me in Woodford Green, Essex. As a result, I spent part of my Easter vacation that year serving tea and biscuits to the Right Honourable Arthur Bottomley MP as he sat for my mother. I was a bit of a political anorak back then, and I used his time as artistic hostage to pump him for information. I asked him about Wilson and Attlee, both good friends, he said, about Pandit Nehru, another good friend, about Dame Sybil Thorndyke, yet another. I asked him if George Brown was really such a terrible drunk, and what was it like to negotiate with Ian Smith in Rhodesia? And this was where I hit problems. There's that old saying which goes, If you can't think of anything nice to say, then don't say it. Obviously, this is sterling advice we should all give our children. But taken to extremes, it kills the art of table talk stone dead. I spent days hoping to hear dirt on his political opponents. Maybe something even Private Eye considered too hot to print. But it wasn't happening. Edward Heath, a fine yachtsman, could easily have been a professional conductor. Margaret Thatcher, 
incredible attention to detail. Enoch Powell? A brilliant mind. He once translated Homer from the original Greek into Coptic, you know. But Arthur, you were chairman of the Race Relations Board. Yes, and he never gave me any trouble. Always the gentleman. Many politicians rise through the ranks by guile, by deceit, by constructing an image that tells the public, I am flawed, but I am one of you. It is now common knowledge that Harold Wilson drank beer and smoked a pipe in public, but far preferred cigars and brandy at home. More recently, if anyone still believes Boris Johnson's affable klutz persona, I have a garden bridge over the Thames for sale at a bargain price. But it appears Arthur Bottomley rose to the giddy heights of high ministerial office by simply being nice. Following his death in 1995, the obituaries characterised him as such, but also guileless and naive, his ministerial career crashing after Wilson sent him off to negotiate with Ian Smith in Rhodesia. Arthur achieved nothing and reported back to Parliament that Smith only wanted what's best for the Rhodesian people, or more accurately, as some on his own side pointed out, for white Rhodesian people. So we might conclude that niceness is important but useless unless tempered with the worldly qualities essential for government ministers confronting apartheid, or for that matter, for raconteurs. But back to the portrait. Arthur's ordeal of having to sit while the artist's firebrand son pumped him for gossip came to an end and normal life resumed. A parliamentary lackey collected the painting a week later and delivered it to Middlesbrough to be framed and hung, as Arthur was immediately off on some or other overseas jolly. Before that, however, there was the matter of the left hand. My mother was pleased with the finished product as only a true artist can ever be. In other words, not at all. In particular, she called the likeness of his left hand a bunch of bananas, and needed my assistance in correcting it. Come on, she said. I'll have it done in 15 minutes. It's not as if you're going anywhere. I positioned myself in Arthur's chair with as much of the grace and presence of a political grandee as I could muster, while my mother corrected the offending appendage. As a result, the portrait of Arthur Bottomley MP hanging in Middlesbrough Town Hall has the left hand of a 20-year-old drama student. While you're here and everything's set up, I may as well paint you too. I've been meaning to for years. How many days is this going to take? I protested. A couple of hours at most, said Mum. We can listen to the afternoon play while I do it. True to her word, two hours later she was finished. The speed with which she dashed off the painting of me, in contrast to the days spent on Arthur, is no doubt explained by the fact that I was her youngest son. It's likely that, artistic or not, every mother already carries an idealised portrait of her children in their head. Mum dismissed the result as a sketch, not worthy of framing or display. Over three decades later, my wife Anita found it covered in grime in the garden shed while we were clearing out my parents' house, and insisted otherwise. It has grown on me over the years, but I still think Mum could have spent more time on the hand. 
That was The Portrait, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 7. The Recipes A small scrap of paper of little consequence fell out from inside a large illustrated book about Claude Monet that belonged to my mother. It could easily have ended up in the bin, but curiosity got the better of me. In tiny handwriting, the scrap contains some recipes for hair care products written by Abraham Hiller, my maternal grandfather known to everyone as Alf. In a parallel universe, Alf Hiller didn't leave school at 14 in 1907 to become an apprentice barber. Instead, he got an Oxford scholarship leading to a Nobel Prize for chemistry. He was an old-school autodidact, indiscriminate in his interests, who immediately hit it off with my father, his future son-in-law, once he discovered that Dad was a biochemist. By his mid-twenties, Alf had his own barber shop in Umberson Street, off Commercial Road, and the business thrived. From my mother's recollections, it sounded typical of its time. This was a place for men's talk, continuous rounds of the middle European card game club yush, illicit horse race betting, and a barbershop quartet. Mum always said that she received her most useful education simply by eavesdropping on their animated and often salacious conversations. It was around this time that Alf began experimenting. Unsatisfied with the various trade and consumer hair products then available, he formulated his own in the basement of the shop. He did this with no formal scientific education other than trial and error, coupled with some books from the library about colloids and organic chemistry. Soon, other gents' hairdressers were asking him where he got his shaving balm and setting lotion, and on discovering he made them himself, asked, Could you see your way to doing me a few bottles in your next batch? With a business partner to handle sales and finance, Alf later took on a factory in nearby Philpot Street to become a full-time manufacturer of professional hair care products. From here, the family's fortunes rose. They moved from their flat above the shop to a large house in Upper Clapton with a Daimler in the garage and, the hallmark of pre-war middle-class life, a live-in housekeeper. His products were patented and the recipes kept strictly under wraps. And this makes the scrap of paper before me all the more precious. I surmise that many years ago, Mum used it as a bookmark and didn't read the contents because, had she taken a look, it would have ended up put away somewhere safe and lost forever. The scrap of paper details three recipes for lime cream, shaving cream, non-soapy, and barber's powder. There is a fourth recipe, but as with most of the ingredients, the title is encrypted, obviously to protect Alf's intellectual property. I assumed it would be a straightforward substitution cipher, 
one I would someday solve in order to market Alf's shaving cream, non-soapy, as a retro must-have for all those men tiring of their beards. But any attempts to crack the code came to nothing. Given time, I might one day get round to deciphering his words. Then again, I quite enjoy the continued intrigue of wondering what two ounces of spubumbux is. Alf's business became a casualty of the Second World War. Many of the ingredients were imported, or if made here, the chemical companies manufacturing essential oils and tinctures shifted to munitions. Alf depended more and more on the financial acumen of his business partner to help keep the company afloat, who instead absconded, having embezzled the company's money. But it was worse than that. The spirit licence for the company was held in his crooked partner's name, so even if Alf wanted to keep the business going, he could no longer legally buy the non-methylated alcohol needed for manufacture. For the rest of his working life, Alf returned to cutting hair employed by others without his own shop. His wife, Anya, my grandmother, suffered a permanently debilitating stroke in the mid-1940s, which resulted in her being confined to a mental hospital, then the common result of such misfortune. Dad described to me how, when they first got together, Mum was never available on Sunday afternoons, because that was the day she visited Anya. She was the one grandparent I never met, dying two years before I was born. Mum rarely talked about Anya's stroke in much the same way as she stoically refused to read any of my brother John's writings on his cancer. Perhaps she was from a time when debilitating illness was something to endure in silence or simply gloss over. I'll never know. One could reasonably have expected Alf to be an old curmudgeon, railing against the injustices life threw at him in his work and his family life. But the grandpa I knew couldn't have been further from curmudgeonly. He was the one elderly relative who never talked down to children, the one always up for mischief and laughter and silliness, despite the occasional tut-tutting of our parents. Every Christmas, Grandpa Haircut, as we called Alf, bought me my favourite gift. Mum and Dad and various relatives insisted on buying sensible presents. No trashy action men, and definitely no guns for us. But in amongst the gaunt toys and poster paint sets, under the tree, would always be Alf's contribution. The Sharp & Co. Junior Smokers Outfit. This selection box of chocolate cigars, coconut sweet tobacco, licorice pipes and candy cigarettes allowed me to play it being a proper grown-up and provided early practice for my subsequent Black John Player addiction. Indeed, had he been a little more crotchety and slow-witted, a little more elderly, I might still remember him from my teens. One evening in 1966, after visiting my Auntie Miriam, he saw the bus back to his flat in Bow and ran to catch it. The car that struck Alf didn't see him dash across the side street on his way to the bus stop. He was conscious in hospital when my parents visited him. His only concern was being late with that month's rent. It was the standard worry of a respectable East End man of a certain generation. The pain of a road accident was nothing compared to the shame of not paying his way be it the result of a crooked business partner or a mortal injury. He died that night.
That was The Recipes, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 8. The Neighbours A rather fancy blue leather-bound copy of the King James Bible sits on my shelf. I have no idea where it came from, perhaps from my brother's school or in a job lot of second-hand books. Purely out of interest, I read it some years ago. If you haven't yet dived into the Bible, then regardless of faith, you really should, because the authorised version is as integral to Western culture as anything by Shakespeare, Mozart or Picasso. From memory, Job, Esther and Daniel are all rattling good yarns. The Song of Solomon is slightly racy. The prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel and the rest, outstay their welcome, and the four Gospels can't seem to agree on what really happened. In common with the rest of my immediate family, I am agnostic. I would say I'm atheist, but what would God think? My parents made a lame attempt to get my older brothers to attend Hebrew classes as children, because at the very least, mum and dad wanted them to know, if they grew up to be non-believers, precisely where they came from and what they were rejecting. But by the time it came to me, they had given up on any pretense of theological integrity. So I can recite the first line of a few Jewish prayers, but my knowledge of ancient Hebrew today is functionally zero. During the 1960s, we lived in a block of nine council flats in Linscott Road, Hackney. A small street, unremarkable but for the fact that the Salvation Army Congress Hall, with its magnificent Corinthian portico, stood at its end, hard by our block. This was no ordinary meeting hall. It was a vast complex surrounding a venue seating 5,000 people. Imagine the O2 at the end of a small working-class side street, and you will get an idea of how out of proportion the Congress Hall was with its surroundings. Every Sunday evening, a marching band made its way along Linscott Road to the main entrance playing the usual Sally Army hymns. The brass players up front, followed by the bass drum, followed by the ladies in bonnets with choreographed tambourines, followed by a motley group of little boys, myself included, excitedly marching and miming trumpets and trombones. Once the festivities ended, a friendly old lady in uniform handed us some boiled sweets and picture cards depicting the life of the saviour. One day, the old lady asked us if we would like to come in and hear some stories with the promise of more sweets and maybe a glass of squash. She led us to a cosy anteroom decorated with biblical posters where a young woman in civvies told the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego as we chewed on our complimentary fruit salads. On returning home, my worried parents went apoplectic once I told them where I'd been. They informed me, rather unconvincingly, that we were Jewish and didn't attend Sunday school or any other Christian event, 
Understandably, though, they were concerned at how easily the neighbours inveigled me into a religious meeting at the age of six without their consent. These days, I'm reasonably sanguine about the Salvation Army. Yes, its uniforms and tambourines and Victorian institutionalism were and are faintly ridiculous. But no one can doubt their commitment to those at the bottom who the rest of society has abandoned. In fact, I have only one memory to push against their selfless, pious image. One Saturday night, the Joystrings came to play the Congress Hall. In the strange melting pot of 1960s British music, the Joystrings were the in-house Salvation Army pop group, who had a surprise 1964 Top 20 hit with It's an Open Secret. Their chart success and Godslot TV appearances in full uniform made them a huge PR success for the Salvation Army, and they continued to record and tour for the rest of the decade. The Diamond family didn't know the joystrings were booked to play at the hall next door. At least, we had no idea until returning home that evening to find the band's entire fan base render Lintscott Road impassable. Slowly, my dad managed to drive his Ford Zephyr 4 towards our block and the side entrance, where for an extra ten shillings a month, he had his own lock-up garage. The crowd weren't exactly mods and rockers, and helpfully moved to either side as the car made its way. It was only when we got to the garage entrance that Dad saw it was blocked. In full-dress uniform, a grumpy-looking Salvation Army general was locking the door to his shiny black Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, having parked on the street right in front of the driveway. The general ignored the now insistent honking from our car, so Dad got out to remonstrate with him. After a short exchange, he returned to the car looking nonplussed. What did he say? asked Mum. Dad turned round and glanced at his three young sons in the back seat. I'll, I'll tell you later. Decades passed before I mentioned to Mum what took place on the night of the joystrings, and she filled me in on the details. It appears that the conversation with the general went something like this. Excuse me, I know it's a small street and there's a lot going on, but you've parked your car right across the entrance to my garage. Would you be so kind as to move somewhere else? Fuck off, said the general. For the only time I remember, Dad was speechless. We parked in the next street. Thinking about it now... Despite the profanity from a senior man of the cloth, despite even the paradox of a man at the head of a church devoted to helping the poor driving a vintage roller, I can't help having some sympathy with the general. He was probably looking forward to a quiet Saturday night in with a mug of Bonvita and Billy Cotton on the telly, but instead had to endure yet another live performance of the joystrings playing a medley of their hit. By the time Dad caught him parking in front of our garage, the General was a man at the end of his tether. It's comforting to know that everyone, even a top brass in the Salvation Army, has their breaking point. That was The Neighbours, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this, then why not hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.
You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 9. Zayda Moisha. Nothing. Zilch. Nada. I have no memento, no picture, nor any other item directly relating to my great-grandparents Morris and Deborah Diamond. All I have is their genes and their surname. My name is Matthew Diamond. At various times, people have asked me if it's a stage name. No. If I'm related to Neil. No. Legs. Definitely not. Or occasionally John. A proud yes. The trouble is that while I spent a large part of my life growing up around Ginswicks from my paternal grandma's side, or Hillers and Fruchts from my mum's side, the diamond heritage remains an enigma. I know that in an ideal world, surnames shouldn't matter, but it's only as I've got older, or the generation above me has died away, that I regret never growing up surrounded by a wider family of diamonds. I have so many questions I wish I'd asked my father, a common manifestation of grief and ageing perhaps. So the only diamonds I have ever met are in my immediate family. For all I know, there is an entire close-knit community of diamond relatives out there, all wondering at get-togethers whatever happened to the family of their great-uncle Alf. You know, the one who ran away from home and lived in a doss house. Among his newspaper columns and scribblings, my brother John wrote a weekly op-ed for the Jewish Chronicle, back in the days when it could still be considered a serious publication. You'll get an idea of the tone of his column when I tell you that when the editor invited him to write for the JC, he immediately replied by email, My mother thought you'd never ask. His weekly column made him a hero or a villain to his readers, depending on their feelings about God, he was resolutely agnostic, or the state of Israel, he had issues. But when he passed away in 2001, it seemed from their pages as if the entire Jewish community felt his loss, and various people claiming kinship contacted my parents via the paper. None of them proved genuine. So I did some research of my own on Morris Diamond in the National Archive at Kew, and discovered a few facts and surprises. The 1911 census shows that he emigrated to Britain from Lodz in Poland, married Deborah in London and raised four sons, Jack, Harry, my grandfather Abraham, or Alf, and Isaac. The census also shows a baby I never knew about, Sarah, who died in infancy. The more detailed story told to me about Morris, or Zayda Moisha, Grandpa Morris, as my dad knew him, is that he became a property developer and in 1909 was elected a Tory councillor in Stepney, back when the East End still elected Tory councillors. More specifically, he owned a chain of theatres and cinemas in and around East London, one of the most fondly remembered being the Palaceum on Commercial Road. This once magnificent citadel of entertainment seated a thousand punters and began life in 1912 as Feynman's Yiddish Theatre. Within a year, the commercial advantages of showing films saw it repurposed as a cinema. As a child, my father used to sometimes go there on Saturday afternoons if he'd overspent his pocket money on sweets and couldn't afford the more opulent Troxy. The Palaceum closed in 1966 
with a showing of Elvis Presley in Girls, 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 by which time it had long fallen into flea pit territory. A few years later it reopened, showing exclusively South Asian films until its demolition in 1985. A Tesco Express now occupies the site. Morris's involvement in the Palaceum only just saw out the end of the Great War. In 1913, his wife, my great-grandma Deborah, died of cancer and he increasingly took to drink. He was, according to my grandpa, already a violent and brutal father and the booze only made this worse. In his teens, Grandpa ran away from home, found work as an office boy and lived in Roughton House, a homeless hostel on Whitechapel Road, while studying accountancy at evening classes. Booze and fast living eventually did for Morris's business, and by the late twenties he depended on his sons to keep him financially, with an unspoken proviso that they could have as little to do with him as possible. I'm speculating that the brothers' estrangement from Morris had the knock-on effect of creating a certain estrangement from each other. I don't believe they were ever at daggers drawn, but equally, with no parents to unite them, there was never a sense that the four siblings had much in common. So they drifted apart into their own, hopefully fulfilled lives. Of the three other brothers, the only stories I know concern my oldest great-uncles Jack and Harry. Jack, the eldest son, built up a dairy and milk delivery business in Bethnal Green and had the bright idea of replacing the cardboard tops on milk bottles with ones made from aluminium foil, an innovation swiftly copied by dairies everywhere. Harry was a trade union official in the London docks. He must have been very good because most dockers in that part of the East End, along with the entire union and political machine, were Irish. However, because he had the diminutive, ruddy countenance of a cheerful leprechaun, they thought that even though he was Jewish, he looked Irish, and nicknamed him Patsy Diamond. In 1919, the East End dockers went on strike, and when both sides were ready to talk, they needed Harry to negotiate on their behalf. But no one could find him, because, this being Yom Kippur, he was at the synagogue all day, atoning for his sins. In his place, they found a sharp-elbowed young official from Bristol called Ernest Bevin, who negotiated so effectively that he quickly rose to become head of the union before entering mainstream politics. This family story always ended with, and if Uncle Harry hadn't been in shul that day, he would have become foreign secretary. As a boy... My father remembered occasional trips to Cizade Moisha, a rather forbidding old man, with the promise of tea and cakes at Lyons Corner House if he behaved himself. There was not much happy chatter during these visits, he recalled. Dad couldn't remember Morris's funeral, but definitely attended the tombstone setting, the grave consecration ceremony held exactly a year after a Jewish burial. It is usual on such occasions for a family member to say a few kind informal words at the graveside once the stone is in place. In Morris's case, nothing was decided. So everyone stood for a while in awkward silence until Uncle Jack stepped forward and gave the stone a swift kick. Nice bit of slate, he nodded approvingly. And the family went their separate ways. 
That was Zayda Moisha, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this story, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time. You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 10. The Five O'Clock Club A small lapel badge from the 1960s TV show The Five O'Clock Club. It's mounted on a piece of dusty velvet in the glass case that hangs in our conservatory wall. It's not the only badge you'll see there and is of little intrinsic value, either monetary or sentimental. The adjacent Puffin Club badge probably means more to me, but when I came upon it during one or other move, I couldn't throw it away. Everyone in the live audience for the Five O'Clock Club got a badge, me included. There was none of the raising money for charity or winning a competition malarkey you got on Blue Peter, You simply took a badge out of the big cardboard box on the way into the studio. It shows a black clock on a white background, indicating the time as 5pm. And that's it. Not much to shout about, but when I turned up to primary school wearing it the following week, I was king for a day. With friends asking, in hushed tones, Did you meet Muriel Young? What was she like? My memories of watching the Five O'Clock Club at Rediffusion's television centre veer between vivid and patchy. I was obviously excited to be at a real television show and eagerly joined in with all the audience participation. But I also remember discovering how shabby the studio looked in real life. And at one point I flinched when a grumpy cameraman hissed at me to get out of the way. And I remember feeling frustrated by the lack of any public address system for the studio audience. One presenter, the actor Jimmy Handley, had a five-minute slot demonstrating model railways. But with all the camera operators and sound crew buzzing around, we could barely hear a word. Associated Rediffusion broadcast the Five O'Clock Club live twice a week on ITV. It was a magazine programme presented by Muriel Young and featuring Bert Whedon, giving guitar playing tips, the aforementioned Jimmy Handley, cookery with Fanny and Johnny Craddock, plus a couple of bands. And providing comical interludes were the glove puppets Fred Barker and Ollie Beak, the forerunners to Basil Brush. It's not a show fondly remembered in the camp nostalgic sense that people recall Thunderbirds, or Adam West's Batman. Neither is it lionised in the manner of Doctor Who or Bagpuss. It's simply one of the vast majority of old TV programmes which were broadcast then wiped from existence, playing no useful role in the fabric of popular culture. Well, almost. Fans of Bob Dylan will be familiar with the groundbreaking documentary Don't Look Back, which follows the man's fractious and often bad-tempered UK tour when he forsook the purity of the folk singer, donned a leather jacket and shades, and, worst of all, played an electric guitar. 
Partway through the film, on May the 4th, 1965, Dylan relaxes in front of the telly in his Savoy hotel suite. A respite from his gruelling schedule of being called Judas in various provincial concert halls. And the poetic voice of his generation isn't watching anything weighty or profound. He's watching the five o'clock clubs Muriel Young and Fred Barker introduce a band called John Mayles Bluesbreakers. Don't Look Back was the first film to take popular music seriously as art, the template for every documentary to wash up on BBC Four. And slap back in the middle is a tantalisingly short glimpse of the towering cultural figure of the 1960s relaxing in front of the five o'clock club, and one wonders what he made of the rest of the show. Did he enjoy the domestic banter between Fanny and Johnny? Did he pick up any new guitar licks from Bert Whedon? But for musos like me, it raises an even bigger question about 1960s pop culture. Specifically, how did John Mayles' Bluesbreakers end up playing on a tea time kids' show? In 1965, the Bluesbreakers were a cult act on the London jazz and blues circuit. They released a seminal album a year later, the one with Eric Clapton reading the Beano on the cover. But when Bob Dylan caught them on TV, they were very much an underground act, adored by the kind of acneed male fans who dismissed any single that graced the charts as too commercial, man. The Bluesbreaker's sound was for people who wanted to hear genuine blues straight from its spiritual home on the Surrey Delta. Such a purist blues act deigning to appear on TV in 1965 was unusual, but for them to be sharing a bill with Fred Barker and Dolly Beak now looks impossible. For comparison, imagine the producers of The Tomorrow People hiring Samuel Beckett as a guest scriptwriter, or Karl Heinz Stockhausen featuring on the panel of Jukebox Jury. But after a little digging, an answer presented itself once I discovered that the musical director of the Five O'Clock Club was Alexis Corner. Throughout the history of media, there have been public figures leading shadowy double lives. I'm not referring to the likes of Jimmy Savile or Gary Glitter here, more to the sidelines and day jobs performed by people better known for something else. The most obvious example in the modern era is Anthony H. Wilson, who by day fronted Granada Reports in a shirt and tie, and by night owned factory records and managed Joy Division. Less well-known is that the comedy legend Kenneth Horne was the managing director of Chad Valley Toys, or that Murray Walker, when not commentating on Formula One, worked in advertising, where he wrote the slogan, Opal Fruits, made to make your mouth water. Alexis Corner had been a talented jazz and blues guitarist since the war. Not famous, but a regular face on the live circuit. In 1961, he started a band called Blues Incorporated. As intended, its personnel constantly changed, with many young singers and musicians arriving and leaving, often to form their own bands with other members. This amorphous mass of spotty Herberts grouping and regrouping eventually gave the world the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, Cream and Led Zeppelin. But the charming and well-spoken Corner also had a day job as the musical director at Rediffusion's Wembley Studios. 
This partly involved booking bands for the Five O'Clock Club, and because the Baron Knight saw Freddy and the Dreamers weren't always available, he easily filled the music slots with artists he knew and often mentored. For their part, the bands earned a few bob and got some exposure, albeit surrounded by pre-teen kids clapping on the beat. And that's how Bob Dylan ended up watching the Bluesbreakers, featuring Eric Clapton's first ever TV appearance, whilst relaxing at the Savoy. And now I'm left wondering, if a tatty forgotten kids show managed to host John Mayall's Bluesbreakers, then what other hidden treasures are lost to us? Does Joe Orton's appearance on the panel of Call My Bluff live only in the memory? Are all the live performances of Tom Lehrer on the Frost Report lost forever? And if Fred Barker can turn up in a seminal Bob Dylan documentary, who knows where we might discover Pussycat Willem. That was The Five O'Clock Club, written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this story, then don't forget to hit like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.